Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this episode of Risk, you'll hear Andrew Agapur. I had this new knowledge that I was so excited about and I really wanted to somehow communicate this and let them know that we were all okay together. And what came out was, you guys, you're my friends and the world is made of colors. So, and they were like, yeah. That and more. But before that, as you know, we're smack dab in the middle of Max Fun Drive 2015 right now. And by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate, you can become a member or upgrade and get loads of wonderful gifts for it, including bonus episodes of Risk. Now, a lot of folks who are new to the show might not know that when I started Risk in August of 2009, I was still living hand-to-mouth. I was terrified about facing another eviction notice, having my phone or my electricity turned off for the umpteenth time. I had truly lost my career, any aspect of financial stability. Once risk was up and running, I realized... (laughs) That it was more than a full-time job. It was more like two or three full-time jobs. But for the first three years, we made almost no money at all. I lost my marriage to my husband of nine years over it. And I couldn't blame either of us. Risk was just gonna have to be a matter of going into more and more debt to keep it going, and to create something that I just so very deeply believed in. But about three years in, 
we joined Jesse Thorne's Maximum Fun Network of Podcasts. And that was a huge turning point for Risk. Here was a network that set itself apart from the rest. They nurtured podcasts that were not just meant to be hilarious, but also thoughtful and emotional. This was podcasting raised to an art form. It was after last year's Max Fund Drive, when we met our goal of over 2,000 new and upgrading members, that we at risk finally started feeling like we had solid legs to stand on in terms of a little bit of financial stability. And as a result, we're touring twice as much. We went from two episodes per month to four episodes per month. We're doing storytelling workshops in more and more diverse communities, creating more and more powerful content. Even after the enormous success of NPR's serial podcast, the podcasting world is still not a place where advertising is keeping most podcasters afloat in a really substantial way. So by becoming a member of Max Fun or upgrading your current membership, you will be helping to keep risk running and improving in a very real way. We very sincerely thank you for it. The Max Fun Drive lasts only about a week longer. Go to maximumfund.org slash donate and be sure to earmark your contribution for risk. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Touch Sensitive behind me now. A good friend of all of us, the members of the state, got married, and so I am in Michael Patrick Jan's guest bedroom right now. Recording these hosting segments. We're calling today's episode Intimates because all three stories focus on successful or not so successful attempts to get to that level of relationship. And as you know, it's the second and final episode of our Max Fun Drive 2015. That means you've got uh, several more days now to go to maximumfund.org slash donate and become a new member or update your membership and get a slew of gifts, including bonus episodes of all your favorite Max Fun podcasts like Risk. Now, the first week of the drive went so well, a lot of people said the thing that they liked the most 
was the bonus episode. So Jesse Thorne said, hey, Kev, we know you've created two bonus episodes for The Drive so far, but considering how excited people are, can you create two more? If we reach 4,000 new or upgraded members, and yes, I can. The truth is we've got a lot of fantastic stories in our archives that we haven't run on the podcast yet for one reason or another. And so if you want to get 16 more stories from us, go right now to MaximumFun.org slash donate and become a member or upgrade right Mickey Ficken now because the drive only lasts a few more days. And these bonus episodes are awesome. But let's get to the stories. In a little bit, we're going to hear from one of my favorite people in the world. My neighbor in Harlem, Ms. Melina Williams. If you've never heard the episode of Risk called Slave, check it out ASAP. Melina told the story on that episode, and it's one of our best ever. But first, we're going to hear from a wonderfully talented friend of ours in Chapel Hill, the illustrious Andrew Agapur. Now, this recording comes from a show in that Chapel Hill Carborough area called The Monty. That's M-O-N-T-I. Listen, if you live anywhere near there, near the Chapel Hill area, get to a Monty show as soon as possible. This organization is the best. They are at themonty.org and their podcast can be found on iTunes. It's just called The Monty as well. And I just love them. Here's Andrew Agapur now, performing there with a story we call My First Love. I don't want to talk about the love of my life tonight. I don't want to talk about my wife because every time I try to speak about love, I freeze up. Usually I'm much better at public speaking. I'm a scholar and a comedian. I'm used to rational investigation and self-analysis. But when I try to turn those mental processes inward to think about the love that I have for my wife, I hit a wall, words fail. And so instead, tonight, I'm not going to tell you about the love of my life, I'm gonna tell you about my first love. An ex, someone I was obsessed with for three years. Her name was marijuana. I met marijuana when I was 18 years old. I saw her at a bonfire. I later learned that marijuana likes to hang out at bonfires. And when I first met marijuana, I was uh, this 18-year-old, buttoned-up, straight-A student who had never done anything bad in his entire life. And if there's any parents of young kids here and you're interested in raising a hyper-disciplined kid, it's super simple. I'll give you a tip. Get a box, present it to them when they're five years old, and in that box, place some orthopedic shoes, (laughs) an asthma inhaler, and like a uh, run-of-the-mill anxiety disorder. (laughs) Because then they're gonna stick to the books. They're never gonna get distracted by romance or sports because those will not be viable options. (laughs) 
And if that kid's anything like me, they will seek out knowledge as a security blanket. There's this story that gets told a lot in my family uh, about my first day of kindergarten. My mom dropped me off at kindergarten. She came back a few hours later, and the kindergarten teacher took her aside because she was concerned. You see, the teacher had given this fresh flock of young kids a tour of the classroom. Here are the cubbies. Here are the mats where you take naps. Here's the corner where we read. Are there any questions? And my hand went straight up, and I had two questions. First, when I buy a house, am I supposed to get one out of, made out of brick or wood? Second question, what's insurance and who do I talk to to get that? Because what had happened was, in my mind, I thought, well, worst case scenario, my mom's leaving me here forever because she doesn't love me anymore. So I might as well secure some knowledge to get me ready for the brutal cold world. Which is pretty strange, but frankly, classic Andrew Agapur behavior. And so when I met marijuana, I was an 18-year-old kid who was very used to trying to secure knowledge to make up for my fears. For example, I had a lot of fear of authority. And so the way I made up for it, my fear of discipline, my fear of school, was to figure out the rules and hit them exactly. That's why I had to be a straight-A student, because that way I wouldn't get in trouble. I also had a lot of fear of people, of my peers in my class. And so what did I do? I studied them like a little... A school ground anthropologist taking notes. Nirvana seems to be popular. Memorize some lyrics before that pool party. But then I met marijuana, and marijuana offered new resources for approaching these things. So, for example, that fear of authority. The very first time I met marijuana at this bonfire, I didn't try it first. But I was amazed that there was this entire community that was working together to cloak themselves from authority. They showed me pipes that were painted to look like cigarettes, and they carried visine and chewing gum to hide themselves from the cops. And I thought that was amazing. And I liked that there was a system that I could learn, right? I could, I could study how they do this. One guy even had a little tool belt where he kept all these things. He was like a burnout Batman. It was amazing. <laughs> Marijuana also helped me with my social anxiety. The first time that I did get high, it was at the back of a pizza place after hours. And I didn't really know these people that well, and I was pretty nervous because I was new, and they thought I was a narc, and they let me know that. And, and I was really afraid that they were judging me, and then they passed me this like homemade bong, and I had never tried a bong before, but I'd studied how they were operated, so I... <laughs> You know, I filled the chamber, and I cleared the carb, and I, I smoked it very fast. And I would say that I got really high, but I think a better way of saying it is that high got me. I was like, <laughs> I was like possessed by, uh, by a, a, a euphoric demon. And it was amazing. I looked out at these people who I had been so afraid of, and I saw their faces, and their faces were beautiful and had stories in them. And I could tell that they, too, had their own fears and idiosyncrasies. And I looked past them to the walls of the pizza place, which was full of these beautiful, vibrant colors I had never seen before. And I had this new knowledge that I was so excited about, and I really wanted to somehow communicate this and let them know that we were all okay together. And what came out was, you guys, you're my friends, and the world is made of colors. So... And they were like, yeah. 
so I knew I was in love. I love marijuana. I don't know how many times over the next three years I smoke marijuana, so like three times 365, I want to say like infinity times. That's the number of times I smoke just every day. It was, it was probably bad in retrospect. Uh, but I wasn't, it wasn't even that recreational. It was an intellectual project for me. I would meditate on the nature of being and analyze my own psychological makeup. And I experienced sugar cookies in amazing ways that I never thought I could before. I also learned how to have fun. I had this tradition with my very good friend, Alan. Almost every single day, we would drive to this really cheap movie theater at the edge of town. This is in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, we'd drive around the back so that we couldn't be seen, and we'd hotbox his Volvo station wagon. And then we would go see whatever movie was showing. And usually, uh, it was pretty obvious what was going on, because we'd always, you know, smell, you know, pretty bad, and we'd always be, like, showing up at a weird time, like, 15 minutes late or 40 minutes early. <laughs> but luckily, the woman who was always working the daytime box office was, like, our surrogate stoner mom. She knew. She took care of us. She was really sweet. She was, like, in her 70s. Her name was Beverly. I had a whole narrative in my head about how she used to be a hippie, and now she was looking out for the stoner showing up at the matinee. You know, she'd be like, hey, boys, how's it going? Oh, I wish I could give you two tickets for Finding Nemo, but that came out last year. That's not out right now. Did... Did you, did you mean that you wanted to see The Incredibles, that Pixar movie? Two for The Incredibles? You do remember you saw that yesterday? Okay. Good luck. And let me remind you, I think of myself as an intelligent person. That was what I was like proud of back then. I really thought of myself as knowledgeable. And so we'd, we'd see these movies stoned, and, and I thought of myself as like an art critic who was really, you know breaking it down. And I had all these like frank opinions about films. I'll share one with you. Uh, we saw Million Dollar Baby. I don't know if y'all remember that movie. It had Hilary Swank and Clint Eastwood and it won a bunch of Oscars. I hated it. And the reason I hated it was really specific. It was that there's this scene where they're sitting together at a coffee shop and they're getting in kind of like a heated argument. And then the waiter brings a cupcake and puts it right in front of Hillary Swank. It's this beautiful cupcake. The camera focuses on it. And she gets really upset with Clint Eastwood and she storms off. And now I understand that scene. It was about how she was really upset and how her athleticism put her above her appetites. But at the time, it seemed really ridiculous that she wouldn't eat that cupcake. <laughs> I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't you take it with you? It's the most portable cake. Just take it with you. It looks delicious. I stormed out of the movie. People were hushing me. I was like, this is bullshit. And this, I'm out. Yeah, really smart. I'm a really smart person. <laughs> so I smoked for another uh, year or so, but then something really unexpected and mysterious happened to me. I had this friend, her name is Emmy, and she did not smoke, and she actually had an ideology that was totally different than mine. She was conservative and Christian, and I was liberal and agnostic. And if you don't know what agnostic is, it's a stoned atheist. <laughs> and we had such different worldviews. 
But at the same time, when I was with her, it felt good. And we never even talked about these abstract intellectual differences because it felt so good to be present with each other. I also remember asking a lot of questions. I'm always trying to figure things out. And I kept asking myself, why is it that when other people laugh, I feel it up here, but that when she laughs, I feel it here? Why is it that when she's around, I don't feel anxious and I don't need to flee into hyper-intellectual space? I can just be here with her and myself. <laughs> Even to this day, my wife, Emmy, is able to calm me down. When I start ruminating about having to buy a house and about health insurance, which are actually good for me to worry about right now, <laughs> all it takes is for her to just reach out and touch my shoulder and I just calm right back down. So we got married six years ago now. Uh, after a couple years, uh, I was long sober, but I decided I want to take her to meet Beverly. I want to take her to this movie theater. Let her meet my surrogate stoner mom so she can know what my life was all about. I was feeling really nostalgic and excited. So we drive out there, uh, and we, you know, we didn't smoke. She's never done that. Um, and her parents aren't in the audience, but you know, in case they watch this, let, let it be known she does not do that. Uh, <laughs> so we, we went to this movie theater, and I introduced her to Beverly. Sure enough, Beverly was working. And I was really excited. I was like, Beverly, this is my wife, Emmy. And Beverly instantly just started talking to Emmy as if I wasn't there. Like, oh, he got married. He drives by himself? <laughs> you share an apartment? He, he lives by himself in an apartment? And I was like, that's weird. She must be mistaking me for someone else. And we go inside, and Emmy pulls me aside before we go into the theater. She's like, Andrew, she didn't think that you were a stoner. She thought you were mentally handicapped. <laughs> and I was like, no. No way. So I started replaying the memories of seeing The Incredibles three times in two days. Of never being able to count my own money and letting her do it for me of the great cupcake tantrum of 2003. <laughs> and I realized that Beverly was right. And that ruined me. I got really upset. Uh, no, no, that I have to correct her. I'm smart, she has to know I'm smart. And I started to get really anxious until thankfully, Emmy laughed, reached out her hand and touched my shoulder. Thank you. For facts on marijuana. Marijuana does bad things to your heart and lungs. People who smoke marijuana can get sick more often because it hurts your body's power to fight disease. Marijuana gives you bad breath and stained teeth. It can make you overeat. It gives some people problems with memory. Others get sudden panic attacks. Marijuana affects each person's mind and body differently. There's no way to predict what it might do. I 
first got involved in kink and BDSM formally with the kink communities in 1995. And that was after having a really transformative experience in 1993, where I met this guy and we had this encounter and it was really amazing. And you can go and find that on the internet. I talk about that in 18 different places. But what was important is that from 95 to today, I have had varying degrees of involvement in the formal kink and leather community and have been actively searching for a partner. What was great was that pretty much from the first time I went to a real-time event, I was meeting kinky folks and I met a dominant in whom I was very interested. We had amazing chemistry and he was a very hardcore, very passionate proponent of leather and of strictness and regimentation and slave training. And of course, I'm like, I am the type A person, so I will now be the most intense, hardcore slave I possibly can. So that lasted about two years. And then I was like, I don't think I'm a slave at all. And since then, I have been on this search, sometimes more actively than others, for a partner for someone who also identified as dominant, for someone who was interested in ownership and master-slave relationships. And being in the King community, of course you meet hundreds of people like that. And then as I started becoming an educator and I was traveling around California and then around the US and then eventually around to Europe and to other countries, I was meeting thousands of folks who were interested in kink and BDSM. And what's amazing is that if you are confident and outgoing and make eye contact and have a firm handshake, people assume you're not submissive and people assume that you are dominant. And when you tell them that you're submissive, what you get is, oh, well, you don't act like a sub. You don't seem like a slave, which is great for a moment of education so that you can tell someone, actually, you know, slaves and submissive type people are, are folks who have this as their kink or as their predilection or as their identity. There's not one way that we look, but it's a real boner killer to have someone who's a dominant tell you that you don't fit their idea of what a submissive looks like. This was my reality for like eight years. And a few years ago, I met a dominant person with whom I had a long distance relationship and it was emotionally satisfying for a while. But as happens with a lot of long distance relationships, it takes a lot more work and effort than he was willing to put into it because he had, you know, he was poly. So he had his wife and he had other submissives and then he had me and there was a lot of work and a lot of maintenance and I am not low maintenance. I need attention and focus and love and pets on the head and cupcakes. So after that relationship was done, I took a deep breath and I thought to myself, okay, this was a person who I connected with very deeply, even if we didn't have this amazing capacity to be together all the time. And I'm like, what can I do to make myself more marketable? And I realized I was caught in this trap of trying to figure out what was wrong with me. Why was I not finding a partner and I had had this hope and this faith that I would for so many years. And starting probably around the fall of 2013, it started to slip away. And not in a despairing kind of way, but in a way where I feel like I was being realistic and saying, I'm probably not going to find a partner. What I want in another person is too much. I need to let go of this ideal that I have for who I'm going to be with so I can move forward with my life. And I'd had some setbacks in terms of my career. I was trying to make a living as a, as a kink and alternative sexuality educator. And that's really tough. And I was looking around at all the other people who were doing what I was doing. And I realized that they all had partners and husbands and wives and lovers and home 
with someone who they could count on. And I did not have that. And I said, I've been struggling in this way with some amazing support from some really great friends. And they saved my life on several occasions. But again, I had to be pragmatic. And I thought to myself, you know what? I just need to say, this is not feasible. Be realistic. It's not going to be feasible for me to make a full-time career out of talking to people about kink. And it's not going to be feasible for me to find the perfect master and dominant who's going to want a 24-7 slave who's going to take care of me because that person just doesn't exist. So fucking get over it. Go get a job. Move on with your life. And I'd had a very real conversation with my higher power and said, I have taken the leap. I have tried. I have done everything I could do to open my heart to this possibility. And I'm feeling an emptiness and I don't know what else to do except to say, I'm going to take back the control that I have. And in the middle of December, 2013, I said, okay, January 1st, 2014, what I'm going to do is get a job. (laughs) And I'm going to get my own apartment and I'm just going to lead a normal life because fuck this shit. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. In fact, nine days later, I got a message on OkCupid from a gentleman who had so many strikes against him. He didn't have a picture on his profile. His profile was barely filled out. There was some information in there, but not enough. But he sent me a lovely message and we exchanged emails. And I finally went over for dinner at his house About him, I will say that I was surprised that someone like him was approaching me because he was a successful composer, a professor, internationally known, and he had his own Wikipedia page with like sections in it. And I was like, look at that. That's kind of what's wrong with him that he's on OkCupid. That doesn't even make any sense. Something seriously awry here. And then I had a friend of mine point out, they were like, your ass is on OkCupid, so if there's something wrong with him, there's something wrong with you too, bitch. And I was like, true that. True that. (laughs) And then what was amazing is that I realized what was quote unquote wrong with him is that he was doing the best he could to connect with people in a new country. He at the time was 60 and had changed his entire life to move to the States. And part of his reason for doing so was that he felt like he had a better chance of finally fulfilling his lifelong fantasies of kink and BDSM and master-slave relationships if he was living in New York. And he was deliberately and methodically looking for someone to explore this with. And when we met, he said, I don't have the experience that you have. You have been doing this for a very long time and I understand that I might not be the most attractive potential partner for you, but I really want to try. And I think that you're fascinating and amazing and beautiful. And and I want to explore this with you. And that was so much more resonant and touching and moving to me than any bravado and braggadocio and 20 years of experience because his openness to try was amazing. And it was also in its own way intimidating because (laughs) he'd been having these fantasies and had fulfilled almost none of them for four and a half decades. Yeah. Whereas I started tying up my first boyfriend when I was 15. (laughs) He grew up in a mountain valley in the Alps. And was like this child genius, you know, musician and then composer and had led this amazing life in his own way. And 
had never explored any of these desires and in fact thought that they were sick and terrible. All of his torture fantasies, all of his desires to dominate and to control were sick and fucked up. Whereas I was like, whatever, ah, who cares? Let's just do it. Just try. Why not? So our being together was this amazing opportunity for him to say who I am is okay. And I'm going to explore all of those facets of myself with someone I care about. And on our second date, he already had written out a draft of a master-slave contract. And we're sitting there at his table and he's saying, I'm not sure that this is okay for you. Probably it's too much, but, and then pretty much goes on to list everything that I've been searching for. He wants someone to be with him constantly. He wants someone to take care of his needs. He wants someone who will support him in his work. And in exchange for that, he will, of course, make sure that they are cared for and taken care of. He said, I understand now that your healthcare system is not so wonderful. And I understand that you don't have insurance, but I'll make sure that you have health insurance. I'll make sure to put some money aside from you since it's not going to be really feasible for you to work full time outside of the house because I need your support. So I will make sure that you have a salary that goes straight into savings for you while we are together. If our relationship does not work out, here's our separation agreement for you as my slave. And in addition, here are the 40,000 things I have not been able to do sexually that I would like for you to arrange, i.e. these gangbangs and these threesomes and these five guys that are going to fuck you and then fuck me up the ass. And I'm sitting there going, okay, well, that's kind of amazing and awesome. I think I can work that out. <laughs> that's great. What I hadn't realized was that his sexual desires were not just like these delightful fantasies. Is that in the very sort of Austrian way, he was like, I have this capacity to get these needs met. I will have them now. When is the threesome? Where's the gangbang? And why is nobody fucking you right now? <laughs> And the thing is that, of course, I want him to have everything he wants. And as we're negotiating our relationship, I'm thinking, sir, yes, of course, of course, I would love to arrange to have five men come over and fuck me while you watch and you direct the action because, of course, you're in charge. And then have these two guys that you find delightful uh, fuck you up the ass while these two guys are fucking me from either side. But logistically, this is difficult from several points of view. And it's gotta be frustrating. I mean, imagine his position where he's been waiting for 45, 50 years to have this fantasy come true. The fantasies come true, but still between him and the candy is this plexiglass and only one little, one little gobstopper comes out at a time. <laughs> he's like, I want all the candy. I'm like, oh, sir, all the candy will choke you and make you sick. Please just have this one piece and please trust me. Please trust me that I'm not being an asshole that I'm not being evasive, that I actually have seen this and been through this with so many friends and so many folks. And if we take a little more slowly, I think you'll be happier with the end result. It's okay to say that. And in the cold light of day, he respected that. But then I started to realize that these desires were so strong for him. And some of it was coming out of a desire for healing because he has some abuse in his background. And this was a concern for me as well. I said, what if you have something that's triggered? Am I prepared to deal with that? There's a lot that he hadn't considered and that my experience gave me the capacity to have the long view. But my desire to serve him gave me the capacity to say, I just need to make this happen. Make it happen. Make it happen right now. Find someone to fuck you right now. What? Why aren't you on Craigslist today, bitch? Find these motherfuckers. 
we were talking one night and I said to him, kind of off the top of my head, I said, so is it that you really want to have some guy have sex with you or is it that you want the sensation of the anal sex? Or I said, because I could get a strap on and, and, and I could fuck you. And he was like, oh, you would do this? And I was like, oh, sure. Keep in mind, please, I have not fucked anybody up the ass with nothing at any point in my life. So I'm like winging it. I'm like, sure, of course, this is piece of cake. And then my other brain is like, are you crazy? You don't know how to run a strap on. Where you going to even have one. But I'm like, it's cool. I got this. I got this. I'm going to work it out. I'm going to work it out. So we're trying to figure out like everything from is this going to be okay for him to what kind of strap on do I get? How do I figure that out? And is this going to be sufficient for his long-term desires? Is this enough for right now? And trying to remember that my taking this action, which might seem, and many assume to be a dominant act, can actually be an act of service. And I spoke to a couple of submissives and a couple of them said, oh, I could never, ever top my owner. There's no way. And I'm like, why? If they ordered you to do something, what would be the thing that would make it less submissive? One of the analogies that I use when I teach, when I talk about what dominance and submission is, and I said, imagine you're at a restaurant and you look over at the table next to you and you see a couple with one plate between them and one person is cutting up the meat and arranging it carefully and feeding the second person bite by bite. Who is the dominant? It could be that it's dominant to be fed. It could be that it's dominant to feed someone. Both of those acts could be seen as acts of control. Both of those could be seen as acts of submission. It's the intention that's behind it. If my intention in strapping on a huge purple dildo and fucking my owner up the ass is to serve him, then it is no longer a dominant act. It's a little bit intimidating. It could be scary, but it's not about domination. And as we were preparing for this, and I, I, I went and I got a, uh, I think it's a spare parts harness. They're fantastic. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to do a commercial for, for these dildo people, but the spare parts harness is great because it looks like very rugged spandex panties with a hole in the front, right, where your clitoris is. And then you can sort of put, as long as you have a flared base dildo, you wedge it in there and it's held really firmly. It's amazing. So there you are with your little cute, my little cute red panties with a bow on either side and my big purple penis. Well, not big, but moderately sized, I would say. He was like, well, what, how do I prepare for this? I'm like, well, you should make sure that you have pooped and that the you are clean. You should take a shower and wash very well down there. And you know, I got some towels and lit some candles. And because I'm slightly mysophobic, I have a little bit of a germ thing. I was like, okay, so I need to have rubber gloves and paper towels and a plastic bag just in case there's some Santorum action happening and it's dripping all over the place. I can't like make sure that there's another towel over here just in case and like arranging all this stuff. And he comes in from the shower and, you know, we're talking and we're kissing and then I'm trying to figure out, I'm like, okay, here we go. Now is, now is the time for the ass fucking. And he's like, well, what should I do? And, and I said, well, sir, um, how about you lay on your stomach and then, you know, uh, get up on your knees a little bit. And I got some lube and had a glove. And, and the first thing I'm trying to think is I'm like, okay, what do I like? And I said, I always remember, but I like to have it taken very slowly. 
I didn't like to have fingers in and then like yanked back out and pop back in. I want like constant stimulation and, and very important to go as slowly as possible and use more lube than you think you could possibly ever need. It doesn't matter if it gets everywhere. So I'm like, okay, lube, slow, slow and lube. So I have the lube in one hand and I got like one finger lubed up and I'm going in really slowly and I'm checking in. How are you doing, sir? And he's like, oh, it is fine. It's fine. I'm like, okay, great. And what I realized first is that I'm so focused on making sure that he's okay that I started to feel the genuine tenderness that it takes to penetrate someone else. As someone who's not a penetrator, I hadn't thought about how intimate that was. And I thought, here is someone who has had some pretty terrible experiences in their life who is trusting someone, and I'm very new to his life, he's trusting me to lose this virginity, essentially, to say, I give myself to you in this moment, please treat me with tenderness and be safe. And I had this amazing surge of just like love and awe because I said, I can't believe he's trusting me this much. He has let me do this. I'm like, okay, okay, don't freak out. Don't freak out. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be right. So, you know, eventually I get some more lube and I have two fingers in. Then I have like kind of two and a half fingers in and, and I can feel him clenching up, but then relaxing. And I make sure to take my other hand and I have it on his back and I'm holding his hand. And then I drop his hand and grab the lube and lube up the dick and trying to get into position. And then I realize hilariously that because I'm kind of chubby, my belly is coming between us. And the dildo. So I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? So now I have to like lift up my gut and squanch it on his butt and get the dildo around. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, I hope nobody's watching this from a cosmic level because they're going to be laughing their ass off. Right now, God is like, look at those people with the strap on. So eventually I got into a good position and had enough lube and kept my fingers in place so that he wasn't disrupted by withdrawal too much and started inching the dildo in and I could feel his body tense up and then relax. And I said, uh, are you okay, sir? And he's like, oh, I'm fine. It's great. It's so great. You're doing it so well. Thank you. And I'm like, oh, you're welcome, sir. And pushed it in a little bit more and then a little bit more and figured out that actually it's more difficult than you would think to give a reach around while you're trying to fuck someone up the ass and like, oh, I can reach his dick kind of barely. Okay, fine. Got that. Jerking off, stroking slowly, got the lube, got this going on. I'm like, this is difficult. This is a lot of work. So now I'm discovering I might have a lot of respect. A, for people running strap-ons. B, for people fucking. Fucking is not a thing where you just climb on there and bang away. There's actually logistics and gravity and, and momentum and physics involved. This is amazing. I finally got to the point where I had the dildo flush up against him. And I just held it there for a while and just listened to him breathing and, and, and watched him relax. And checked in to see if he was okay. And started stroking a little bit, sliding it in and out. As I started to build up more momentum and as he relaxed into it and seemed to really be enjoying it and to open it up, I felt unbelievably protective of him. Like it wasn't even like this was an act of dominance. To me, it felt so much like I was giving him the opportunity to experience something for him. This was about his pleasure, his exploration, 
his erotic charge and he was obviously getting really turned on and I'm jerking him off. And then I think it got a little bit too intense because he was like, okay, okay, I think, I think that I'm done now. And I said, okay. And I, so I stopped moving and slowly withdrew the strap on. And then, uh, I said, do you want to do anything else more right now? And he said, no, I said, okay. So I, you know, unwrapped the <laughs> gloves and put them away by the side and he laid on his side and I came up behind him and I held him and we were just sort of breathing together. And he said, thank you so much. I could feel how much you loved me. I could feel how much care you were taking for me while you were doing that. Thank you. I don't know what better or more pure service I could provide than to have someone I love feel how much I cared for him in this act that might seem like an act of penetration. And for him, because of difficult and terrible things that happened in his past had been a violation and had not been consensual. And it's not to say that he's now cured of all of his negative associations and everything's great, but it is to say that he trusted me and together we went to this place where that strap on and that awkwardness became an amazing act of love. I felt how much he loved me by giving me the opportunity and honor really. And I'm not exaggerating the honor of saying, I will accept this from you. And for me to be able to give that to him. And I felt so, <sighs> I'm feeling really emotional about it right now. I felt so humbled. I was, I couldn't believe that something as simple as just strapping on a sex toy and fucking someone else could actually get you to the point where you understood how much they loved and trusted you and how real that is in that moment. And if anyone ever said, oh, well, I don't see that fucking someone could be an act of submission. I said, then you don't understand what trust looks like when someone really trusts you. Child, put your walking shoes on. Look yourself in the hat. Get yourself fed out of bed now. Come on. You can feel it in the wind now. Yeah. It's going round and round again, up and down again. It's moving. Sunday morning, I got my. Love calling, yes I know she's coming, gonna be with me It make me feel so good Make me feel so good Here come the sun, with this warm touch Here come the sun, now job on in on me You can feel it now, God Lovely too much now You could feel it in the wind now 
going round and round again, up and down again, feel it moving. This is Risk. This is Dion behind me now. This is another song that I grew up with, but that's been out of print in the U.S. for decades now. Now listen, you know a lot about Max Fun Drive so far, but did you know that for every member who signs up or upgrades during the drive above our goal of 2,000, Maximum Fun will donate five meals to hungry families in Los Angeles by contributing to the L.A. Regional Food Bank. That's just wonderful to know. That warms my heart. So much good stuff is happening from this drive. So listen, if you pledge $5 per month, you get tons of exclusive bonus content, including never-before-heard episodes of Risk. $10 per month gets you that and the tote bag. $20 per month gets that, the tote bag, and the in-flight power pack. That includes a mobile... No, mobile... A mobile device charger, a collapsible water bottle, antibacterial wipes, <laughs> and pilot wings. $35 a month gets you all that and a pair of rocket engraved shot glasses. And $100 a month, you are in the inner circle, the Max Fun Culture Club, that includes new gifts each month. $200 a month, you get all that plus free registration to Max Fun Con 2016. But most importantly, you get the satisfaction of knowing you're supporting great podcasting. Now, our last story today comes from a favorite of ours, Melanie Hamlet, who told this one at our show at the Nerdist Showroom in LA. Here she is now with a story we call The Pearl. Hello. <laughs> you guys are a great audience. Um, I, uh, so a few years ago, no, I'm serious about that. You guys are a great audience. You're great. I love how much you laugh. Um, anyway, a few years ago, I decided to buy a one-way plane ticket to Argentina just to move there and see what happened. I've kind of been a nomad and a gypsy most of my life, and so this wasn't unusual for me. I was kind of getting bored with New York, so... Um, I, I landed there and I wandered around for a bit, but it was kind of hard to make friends. My, my, my English was okay, but it wasn't, or my Spanish was okay, but it wasn't. My English is great. My Spanish was not very good because they speak like very different in Argentina. They speak uh, with like, they say show instead of yo. Anyway, whatever. Uh, it was hard. So I finally was like, maybe I should settle in one town and try to meet some friends instead of wandering. So I go to this city, this small little city in, right outside of Patagonia. And uh, the first person I meet, uh, his name is Tuda, for real, <laughs> to you, to you. And uh, he is um, classic Argentinian. He looks actually just like Phil from Modern Family, except younger. He's got sharp features, and he's, he's, um, 
he's like an engineer. He's fascinating. He, he loves soccer. Uh, whenever he would, we would watch a game together, he would like hold up the flag, like in his living room. He'd hold up the flag and wrap it around him. Um, he was super nice and he was cynical and he like constantly criticized the United States, which I love that because I always do that and I had someone to talk to about and his English was perfect. He told me my, my first day I met him how to break a banana in half with your hands. You can do that. Um, so anyway, we became buddies. And I'm like, yay, a friend. And, uh, but our friendship very quickly morphed into something else because he started kind of like flirting with me. And, and one day we're sitting on his couch. By as quickly, I meant like two days. Um, we're sitting on his couch. And uh, he starts giving me the look. And I'm like, uh-oh. And, uh, and then he like puts his hand on my knee. And I'm like... Oh, God. So I was like, quick, think. And I'm like, will you go get some ice cream? And so I sent him out to go because I had this, first of all, I don't want to break my golden rule. I don't want to fuck a friend, my only friend in this whole country. And I just got here. You don't fuck someone when you first moved to a town. That's a terrible idea. So uh, I got him out of, the, out of his house for a second. And I've seen something about Mary, and I was like, maybe that'll work for me. You know, where he, like, jacks off before he goes on a date with Mary so that he won't, like, want to fuck her as bad. So I was like, maybe if I masturbate, I'll get it out of my system. (laughs) So I totally did. It's actually the opposite effect for women. (laughs) Guys can just blow their load and move on, but women are like, like, I scratched that itch, and I was just like, itching more. By the time he got back, I was like, I'm totally going to fuck this guy. And I did. Um, It didn't work. Don't do that, ladies. Uh, So now we're dating. Uh, So I'm like sleeping with my only friend, which is actually new for me because I'm the classic healthy single woman in her 30s who who only has one-night stands and hate Fox and, you know, expiration dating, the kind of, you know, people who are, like, terrified of commitment and intimacy do, right? So that's been my history. So I'm actually sleeping with someone I know or, you know, kind of, like, hang out with when I have my clothes on. And uh, it was fascinating. I'm like, wow, we, like, eat meals together. Like, honestly, I literally just, I'd never had, like, any kind of real relationship before, if you want to call this real. And uh, we, we ate meals, we went to the lake, and I actually started to like him and enjoy spending time with him. So one day, I sent him an email. We had plans to go to the lake the next day, but I sent him an email and I was like, took a chance, you know? I was like, hey, you know, like, just think you were going to the lake tomorrow and you know, I really like hanging out with you. Like, I think it's really fun. I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, whatever, like some stupid cheesy thing. And I then hit send and then I didn't hear back from him for a while. Uh, by a while, I mean a few hours, and I was like, I started getting more and more anxious, and then I'm just like, classic default Melanie mode, and I was like, fuck that guy, I don't need a man to prove my worth, I don't need a man, fuck him, and uh, so I went to the club, and uh, now I don't drink, but I dance to techno like no one's business, and I was like, fuck ah, you know, and uh, I danced until four in the morning, and uh, Right when I was about to leave, this guy comes in the door, and he's so handsome. He looks, you know, Italian. He's got, like, he's classic Argentinian arrogance, where he's just like, mm. And he's got his <laughs> collar up. He's got, like, the pirate smile, you know. And he heads right over to me, and I'm like, I'm going to, And uh, so we start dancing right away, and then we start, like, dirty dancing. And the whole time, I'm like, yeah, fuck Judah. This guy's way hotter anyway. I hate that guy. Uh, I don't need a man, so I do. Um, anyway, so I, 
his, his English is awful. He doesn't speak at all. My Spanish is loud, like whatever. I can't really communicate with him. I think he's a lawyer, and his name is Sebastian. So we're dirty dancing, and then I was like, fuck it. I'm, t- I'm like, I have, I'm so horny. I'm, I'm, let's go. So we got in a car, and we left. This is why all my family friends think I'm going to get murdered all the time. He's like, no one even knows where I am. And, uh, and I'm like, I'll get in a car with this guy. So I think we're going back to his house. We actually end up at a lake. <laughs> and I'm thinking, the sun's starting to come up, and I'm thinking, oh, how romantic. Like, we're just going like, to hang out here, and then we'll go fuck. You know? And uh, <laughs> no, as soon as he parks the car, he like crawls over into my seat, throws on a condom, and he's like ready to go. And I'm like, whoa. Now, I'm a gypsy. I've, I lived in my truck for years. I probably fuck more people in a car than, like, in a bed. So I'm totally comfortable fucking in cars. But, like, not like this. You guys are like, God, what a whore. Proud, loud and proud. Anyway, but, like, this was so fast. There was no foreplay. He was just like, let's go. And it lasted, like, two minutes. It sucked. I had no pleasure whatsoever. And then when he was done, he, like, jumped back in his seat, like lit a cigarette, tied his condom up in a knot, threw it out the window like a grenade, and then started the car. And, I'm like, uh, and I was like, do you even remember my name? Uh, and I said that in Spanish, and he was like, no. <laughs> like, no. And um, so I'm like, all right, maybe we're heading back to his place now. <laughs> right? Like maybe, uh, no, he actually took me back to the bar <laughs> that he got me from. And his friends were waiting outside, and I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. I'm like, okay, we're picking up his friends. Where are we going now? We go to another bar. And uh, I'm like, okay, maybe he like, wanted to dance some more. <laughs> like, I don't know. And then once we get there, it becomes very obvious. He starts texting someone else. You know, he starts kind of ignoring me. And I'm like, oh, I know what's going on here. <laughs> uh, and then this girl comes in. She's got hair down to her ass. She's beautiful. She's probably 10 years younger than me. And, uh, and she immediately comes up to him and starts talking to him. And now I'm like, oh, like he's already tapped this ass and he's already ready to move on to another one. Now, I've had plenty of one-night stands, but I've never had like one-hour stands. <laughs> you know, like, and maybe it's because I'm in my 30s at this point in time, or maybe it's because I'm a woman, but I just... If I fuck a guy and give him a number, you know, like, I, oh, I've fucked how many people? If I give him a number, I want to get, like, several lays out of that. I was like, at least we could have sex all night or get cuddled or blah, blah. Nope. It's just like, bang, 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 boom. So, uh, I know I'm so pathetic. Uh, <laughs> won't you cuddle me, you asshole? Come on. Um, anyway, I'm like, all right, this is kind of humiliating. I think I should just go. So I went up to him and I, you know, asked if I get my shit out of his car because it was still there. So we all left. So everybody was ready to go. So we all walked to the car together. His friends, the new girl, and me. <laughs> Awkward. And so I'm walking and the girl comes up to me and she was like, hey, are you from the United States? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, I'm Jessica. I'm from Canada. And I'm like, well, hey. <laughs> Now, my ego wants to hate this bitch, right? Because she's taking my man, or not my man, but she's taking my place, right? But I like her. She's really sweet and bubbly, and we start talking. And I haven't had, had like, a woman in my life in, in weeks because I've been traveling, and she spoke perfect English. She's from my culture. So we start, like, two turkeys, like, blah, 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 and we're just, like, getting along immediately. And we get back to his car, and he gets in, and he motions for her to get in, not me, of course. And um, she's like, hold on a minute. And we said, and we stand next to the parking meter, and we start chatting. She's like, look, I'm sorry if I, like, 
got in the way of you and Sebastian. If you want to hook up with him, you should. Like, I don't want to get in your way. And I was like, no, actually, it's cool. I already did. Uh, he's kind of an asshole. And she's like, oh, I know. I just want to fuck him. I don't like him. And I was like, well, you're never going to get along. Uh, and she was like, but I like you. And I was like, well, I like you too. And she's like, did you just move here? We start talking about all this stuff. I was like, yeah, I don't really have any friends, but I'm looking for cool people. And you seem really cool. She's like, I'll be your friend, and we exchanged numbers. And she offered to pay for my cab ride home because she felt bad that he was just abandoning me. Now, I want to, I like to walk my shame out. So I'm doing, I'm not, you know, I walk, I did my little walk of shame. He's like, no thanks, it's okay. Um, and when I got home that night, and we made plans to go to coffee the next day. When I got home that night, I checked my email, and of course, there's a message from Tuda. And he's like, I'm sorry, it took me a while to get back to you. I, yeah, I totally want to hang out with you tomorrow. And I'm like, God, motherfucker, this is why I'm like always single, because I'm like, every man sucks, they're going to fuck me over. So fuck you, and then I'm going to fuck some jerk, and then fuck everybody. You know. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. The moment I feel vulnerable, I'm like, peace. So uh, I was like, all right, maybe I should <laughs> give this guy a chance. Maybe he's not an asshole. <laughs> so I end up dating Tuto like for real kind of after that and didn't go and run and fuck some Sebastian guy anymore. And we did things like I went to his band practice. Um, I watched these soccer games with him all the time. I met his family and I enjoyed something about a relationship I never had before, which is like companionship and like talking and shit. And uh, <laughs> And Jessica became my best friend. We went to like on a climbing expedition in Patagonia the week after we met. We met up for coffee all the time. She was like my girl, you know what I mean? Who I could like tell everything to. So one day Tuda and I go out uh, to the bar and uh, he gets wasted and we run into Jessica. And she was like, oh, you're Tuda, I've heard so much about you. And they start talking and she was like, isn't Melanie just a pearl? Like, she's like this gem that I found at the bottom of the ocean. She's amazing. I've never met anyone like her. Isn't she just this precious little pearl? And Tuda, because he's wasted, and wasted people don't know how to hide their real emotions, he was like, eh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> and then inside I'm like, oh. <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh, my God. So, like, that stuck with me for, like, the next few weeks. Every time we were hanging out, I'm like, I couldn't get that out of my mind, and I started noticing this guy, like, we do everything he wants to do. We, you know, I, I go to his band practice, I listen to his fucking band stuff. I'm, like, fascinated by this guy. I want to get to know him, but he, he doesn't ever ask me about myself or anything like that. And one day I got an email from Kevin Allison, the guy who created the show and produces it, and he asked if I wanted to be on a podcast, and I was like, hell yeah. So I was going to record it by phone from Argentina. And I told Jessica, and she was like, that's amazing. That's so awesome. When can I hear it? Tell me all about it. And then I told Tuda, and he was like, that's cool. And it occurred to me, he didn't even know I was a comedian. He had no idea that I'd sacrificed like the last, you know, years of my life pursuing comedy, writing, storytelling. This is like my baby, and he'd never asked about it. And believe me, I love talking about myself, right? I'll give any opportunity to talk about myself, but not if they act like they don't give a fuck. Then I'm not going to say anything. So I was like, Tuda doesn't think I'm a pearl. And I'm pretty sure, now I don't know, because I'm new at this whole relationship stuff, but I'm pretty sure the guy you're sleeping with and dating should think you're just as amazing, if not more so, than your friends that you're not fucking, right? Because they get to fuck you and be your friend. So, um, 
So I broke up with him. <laughs> and Jessica and I became even closer. I started hanging out in her world, like meeting her friends. We traveled around Argentina and Chile together. She ended up coming on my family vacation with my parents like months and months later because my sister had her husband and I had Jessica. And, um, and my parents over dinner one night were like, you guys feel like you guys have known each other since you were kids or something. You're so cute together. How did you meet? And I remember that, well, we fucked the same guy within hours of each other. So uh, I was like, yeah, uh, mutual friend, you know? <laughs> and, um, and then after that trip, Sebastian, who had friended her on Facebook, not me, kept seeing pictures of me and her together in all these places. And he, he sent her a message. He goes, did you know that girl? Like, what's the story, man? And she wrote him back, no, I didn't actually. Thank you so much for introducing us. <laughs> so I could send a message to Sebastian. It would be, thank you so much for bringing me to the girl that's amazing, one of my closest friends, who also taught me that if anyone doesn't think I'm a pearl, fuck them. No, don't fuck them. Get rid of them. Thank you. <laughs> is all for this week's episode folks this is rye behind me now and don't forget risk is live in new york city on march 26 we have ophira eisenberg chris gethard actually it's an all-star show don't miss us in new york on march 26 on the 29th we are in portland oregon a wonderful show in portland some really deep and hilarious stories so be sure to check us out on the 29th in portland oregon we are also live in la on the 31st of march check us out sean Patton will be there and nicole buyer two people who have blown the house down both times they've done risk on april 9th we are in detroit our first ever time in detroit city Please come out and see us, folks. That's going to be a hell of a time. And then on April 11th, we return to Chicago, Illinois. So, folks, so many great opportunities to come see us. Always check out where Risk is happening live next at risk-show.com tour. And let this be the final time. 
during Max Fun Drive 2015 that I let you know that Risk is listener supported. If you want to help keep us running, now is the time to do it during our fundraising drive because there's so many wonderful gifts to get from it, especially those bonus episodes of Risk. So go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and become a member or upgrade and be sure to earmark your contribution for risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. just coming off the internet and uh, uh, uh let me rewind ah, clearing the brain <laughs> that's how it works that frequency clears everything